Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. See You on the Other Side podcast, episode 290. And today, Wendy and I are talking about the brand new movie, Big Fur, which is the story of taxidermist Ken Walker and how he made a super cool fake Bigfoot. And so today we're joined by the director of Big Fur, Dan Wayne, as well as the taxidermist with the most himself, Ken Walker. Welcome. Hey. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) So, Mike, I have to say that uh, you and I both have something in common, that we are Wisconsin born and raised people, yes. both from non-hunter families. So uh, watching this was really, really fascinating to me because I'm completely ignorant when it comes to the world of taxidermy, unlike many people around us here in Wisconsin. So learning about uh, Ken and his his world championship taxidermy skills was something really, really unique to me. How about you? That was all completely new to me. And I'm, I'm somebody that, um, you know, I, I've fired guns before and stuff, but never actually at something, only at targets. So, I, you know, it, the, the world of taxidermy, I thought, was completely fascinating as to how they made all the stuff and really what, what went into the creation of especially a, like, what we think of him as non-fictional, Bigfoot uh, kind of character, um, but trying to create something that you only saw in a movie, uh, I thought was really interesting. Right. And and there was one synchronicity I kind of wanted to get out of the way right away in our discussion. Um, so part of the movie takes place in Springfield, Illinois, at, um, was it the 2013 uh, taxidermy, world taxidermy, like uh, taxidermy offs? I think it was the 2013. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we were... There's two different World Taxidermy Championship scenes, and one was in 2013 in Illinois, and the other one, incidentally, is at Springfield, Missouri in 2015. <laughs> and just what I thought was funny about it is that as I'm watching the movie, I see Springfield, Illinois, uh, at a hotel that we've stayed at, like the Crown Plaza in Springfield, Illinois, and when we, <laughs> when we used to play in Springfield uh, very frequently we would often play with a band that was called Big Fur. Really? <laughs> no way. Seriously, yeah. That, that is crazy. Well, it's funny because when I first, you know, came up with the name of the movie, I, it was like, okay, it's time to secure the website. And I go to get bigfur.com and some band has the name. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> like, God, I can't think. Actually, I don't know if they're any good or not, but... Um, yeah, I was really surprised that there was a band named Big Fur, and so I ended up with BigFurMovie.com, which, of oh course, is where you can go to keep up on, on things. But yeah, that's Fair. funny that, that you know those guys. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a really weird connection, because when I heard the name of the movie, immediately I thought about that band, because over the years we've done so many shows with them, and I, I always thought it was a unique name. So, yeah. anyway. Yeah, I wonder if they're still together. I don't actually. They, they. Yeah, I, I don't know. think that they were going to have a reunion show. We got an email from one of the guys last year. They were going to have some reunion shows, and they were wondering if they wanted. We wanted to come down to Springfield, and they wanted to come back up to Madison, Wisconsin, to play. So, 
2019 was when the Big Fur movie was released. Maybe they wanted to capitalize on all your publicity. Perfect. There you go. But you know what I do want to say, though, is you did do a really cool publicity stunt for the movie. And um, I want to get to that in a second. But I want to say first, like Dan and Ken, as you know, Dan, as a filmmaker, Ken, as a taxidermist, how do filmmakers and taxidermists end up getting to know each other like that? You know, like what was um, I mean, how did you guys what was your meet cute? Well, you know, I, I had this interest in taxidermy and, and I started trying to learn how to do it. And uh, pretty quickly during my early research, found out that there was this World Taxidermy Championship. And I found out about this through a, a forum that all the taxidermists are on where they share tips with each other and with beginners. And, and Ken is on that forum and all the best taxidermists in the world pretty much are on that forum. And uh, I found out about the World Taxidermy Championships, and they usually have them somewhere in the Midwest because everybody drives and they bring trailers, and it's just easier if it's a central location. Sure. And uh, it just incidentally, that week it was in St. Charles, Missouri, which is only you know three hours from where I live, and and I went you know just for the day, and it was pretty mind blowing to see the work that was there, and that really kind of opened my eyes, you know, to to taxidermy as an art form. And it wasn't long after that that I started thinking about doing a documentary, and I got more interested in the characters that were doing it than actually learning how to do it, although I do kind of practice it as an amateur, too. And, uh, and so, you know, I knew about Ken. Uh, you know, he, he's really kind of specialized in the taxidermy world because he does these recreations, which is, you know, endangered or extinct animals made out of other animal hides. So that's real unique. You know, most taxidermists just do fish or just do birds, and they just do mammals. And Ken's known for these things like his Irish elk and his giant panda and his saber-toothed tiger. And so, you know, he was kind of on my radar and really was the first person I approached. And uh, we just kind of hit it off on the first, you know, phone call we had. And when he told me he was going to make a Bigfoot, I knew that that was the movie right there. (laughs) Perfect. Well, uh, you know, I think, Dan, number one, you're lucky because most of us, when we when we aspire to try to do something or learn a new skill, we have to learn, like, let's say I wanted to, you know, learn a different instrument. I got to learn from the local guy at the music shop or I got to watch YouTube and see some dude give a lesson. Meanwhile, you get to immediately contact the best people in the world uh, to work on a skill. And that, I mean, that's something remarkable um, as it was. And so... Now, Ken, what made you interested in the first place in trying to recreate, because that's a very specialized thing, um, you know, to recreate uh, animals either extinct or animals that, you know, um, that we don't have corpses of uh, to examine. That seems like a harder thing to try to sell to a bar up north or something like that when you're trying to sell taxidermy pieces. Like, what attracted you to these extraordinarily um, difficult works? Well, it, it, it kind of was a natural evolution with, uh, with some investigations I was doing just through the, uh, the hunting community. Uh, it, it turns out I actually saw a Sasquatch about 30 years ago. And the, the funny thing about belief is that they, there's a good, a good saying, and that is that you will see it when you believe it. And this thing ran across the road in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the woods. I was out driving down the road. We were hunting bears out in a place called Blue Ridge uh, near the Swan Hills of western Alberta. And back then there was no logging in there. There was just one road, the Simpson Timber Road. And this guy ran across the road about 400 yards ahead, and I thought it was a bear at first. 
And then I realized, no, it's a man. And then he ran up a hill. And I mean, like 30 miles an hour without slowing down. And I'd never seen, even a bear can't do that. And I thought, who is this guy? And we went up there, and uh, my friend who was with me said, was that a Sasquatch? And I said, there's no such thing. I said, it had to be a man because, you know, back then, you know, I was younger, so I knew everything. And <laughs> the thing ran straight into the it ran straight into the woods without slowing down. I said, well, there has to be a cut line there, a seismic line, because nobody can run into this thick Alberta bush that fast. And the, there wasn't. And, I was, and, you know, the thing never sat right with me for the longest time. It, I've since found out that was salt of a place called Kidney Lake, and they still see them there all the time. And I did find, subsequently find the tree structures out there, which is my way of confirming they're there. Uh, you know, so, and then I started talking to people years later, um, that two people had told me that, that, you know, they encountered Sasquatches, and I knew these people. I knew for a fact they weren't lying to me. And I went, man, if these things are out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for them. And uh, so I started my investigations, and uh, it was mind-blowing what I was able to uncover uh, just through the hunting community uh, to the point of getting DNA tested. You know, so it was uh, it was very very uh, interesting, and so it was just a natural evolution. When I saw the the first time I saw the Patterson footage, actually slowed down, and uh, you know, and zoomed in and stabilized. Uh, it took me just a few seconds to realize because I have a trained eye for this thing. You know, I build I build scientific models for the Smithsonian from photographs. So I looked at it and I realized right away that all of the ratios, the limb ratios, the parameters. Uh, the width and everything of that creature I was looking at were outside of human parameters, and this thing was, in fact, real. Uh, because, you know, I, I mean, I studied special effects when I was a kid. 1967 was the lizard man in, in Star Trek, you know. Yes. Oh, yeah, the Gorn. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, so when you look at, when you look at the, the time, and the stretch fur, of course, wasn't uh, invented until the 1980s. I mean, it, it just took me a few seconds to realize. And, I mean, what, now that they've got it in 4K, it's just incredible. When, when, uh, when Patty turns sideways to look, and, and she's actually watching Bob Gimlin pull his 30-06 out of his scalp. Let's, let's go back real quick right there, because I want to okay, go over that story there. Just yeah. because you're saying, like, we're throwing out Patty and Gimlin and... <laughs> Yeah. And for oh, us, yeah, okay. you know, for us, we're all like, oh, yeah, obviously. But um, okay, okay. for anybody uh, who, everybody out there who's probably listening to this podcast has seen this footage. It is mm -hmm. the 19, um, what was it, 1967? 67, yeah. 67, yeah. the Patterson Gimlin footage is from, it's from Northern California, if I'm not mistaken. Bluff. And yeah. it's, I mean, everybody's seen, it's the famous footage of a female Sasquatch, Bigfoot, like, walking across a field full of like um a tree like fallen trees kind of thing and um it's very famous and if anybody has seen the bigfoot cutouts like that you can when you're driving down the road and people will put bigfoot cutouts like on the side of the road and places and uh restaurants or something like that to catch your attention that specific like bigfoot movement where it's got like one arm forward one arm back um that's taken from the Patterson-Gimlin film uh, from 1967. And that is the basis of what we're just talking about right there. When we're talking about, we're talking about 1967, we're talking about special effects available to NBC for making Star Trek versus uh, two cowboys uh, taking footage, you know, in the backwoods. And so that kind of want to 
kind of want to explain that, and that's some of the inspiration for how you were building this uh, creation. Yes. Well, the thing is, and, and I don't build anything unless I have proper reference because I just don't want to. You know, I, I don't want to make something unless I can make it accurate from a scientific point of view. And, uh, of course, people are going to want to argue with me on that statement. But <laughs> the thing is, when I, saw the, when I saw the footage, I realized that I had all of the information that I needed to build the template. Um, and, and, you know, for limb ratio, like where pivot points are in the knee to the, to the ankle, the length of the foot, and in one of the, the really good um, stills from the, from the film, uh, you can actually see, because the, the, when a Sasquatch steps forward, its shin is parallel to the ground, you can see the bottom of her foot. You can see all five toes. You can see the pad. Now, I know that that's just under 15 inches long because they casted the tracks that day. So I actually took a little measuring tool, and that's how I measured all my parameters, width, and I made my own chart of measurements with using the, the foot length being just under 15 inches because I didn't trust anybody's measuring chart. I had to make my own. And it just turned out that uh, a, a gentleman uh, by the name of John Green from uh, British Columbia had made a, a, a measurement chart from the site of the Patterson footage. And my chart, uh, they, they measured trees and rocks and things. I just measured the foot. My, my template was identical, exactly, down to the inch. Wow. So, uh, so I just I realized theirs was accurate and that mine was accurate. So it was basically for me it was corroborating. You know, I knew I wasn't going out there. You know, I, and a lot of people want it to be bigger. Well, it's just under seven feet tall. But I actually know people who've encountered female sasquatches and they told me that's how big they are. You know, so it's uh, um, so. Anyways, I that I had I had perfect reference in my humble opinion. Well, you know, when you talk about your own Sasquatch story, what I'm interested there is when you say running up the hill at 30 miles an hour, did it seem like a big dude? You know what I mean? Like like big guys that would be as big as a Sasquatch running 30 miles an hour, that limits you to what? Walter Payton? Reggie White? Like how many guys, <laughs> big guys can run that fast up a hill? This one that I saw was not that big. Uh, and, and, uh, as a matter of fact, there's another piece of footage that's quite uh, well-known out there, and it's called the Memorial Day footage. And it's where some people uh, on Memorial Day out for a picnic, they, they filmed a Sasquatch or, or proposed what's purported to be a Sasquatch running across uh, a hillside. That is exactly what I saw, and very similar in size. You know, in, in that... Now, the thing was quite far, uh, and it was also... Uh, it broke cover and it was acting almost scared, like really scared, like almost like, you know, nobody poaches in the spring. Is this a poacher? Why is he so scared? Why is he dressed in black from head to toe? But I almost think that it was probably a, um, a sub-adult that hadn't got across the road before our truck was in sight. And the other one... A teenager. Yeah. And basically, I and because and it, it broke cover to catch up to the other one out of out of uh, fear. This was just the kind of thing going through my head, you know, because it had no no reason to break cover other than to just stand there and wait till we passed, which is what a big one will do, uh, you know. So that was um, that was the the one thing about it. Like it wasn't like I was really close, and this was one of those you know ten foot tall ones with a nineteen inch track. It was it, it seemed to be almost within human parameters in size, but it was still a long distance. 
and uh, it's very hard to judge size at distances, but whatever it was moved like lightning. It moved fast. That's very cool. Well, in addition to your own experience, it occurred to me while I was watching the, the film that, you know, you probably have more interaction with hunters than anyone. <laughs> and so I was curious, you know, how frequently do people like fess up to you about the, and especially after your Bigfoot project, because Bigfoot isn't the kind of thing that everybody just openly talks about. But do you think that um, creating that replica of Bigfoot might have made people more willing to discuss their own experiences with you about it? Well, almost nobody's willing to discuss it, but I was able to target the individuals who had seen one when it was in my shop. And most of the people, they walk in, you know, they're looking at the polar bears, they're looking at the grizzlies and the, you know, the wonderful bighorn sheep and all that stuff. And then they see the Sasquatch standing there and they'll look at me and they go, no way, no, you know, where'd you get that one? You'll make a joke or they'll say, hey, get, get my wife out of the truck. She's going to come in here. There's a Sasquatch in here, you know. And that's how most people are. You get, I get the odd person who stands there and looks at it in silence and without making any emotions or anything they turn around and they walk away and they're acting as if they didn't see it <laughs> and when somebody does that i went i said i just say i got you i got you you've seen one and they'll say what what and i'll say you've seen one and i'll say if it makes you feel any better i've seen one too and so then what i do is i talk to them and i says i know you've seen one you just i said look it's just you and me standing here and then some of the stories that i, that I get are absolutely amazing uh and i can always tell if somebody if somebody almost, they, they walk away from it looking with a look on their face like they wish they hadn't even seen it in my shop. Huh. And those, so I used to gauge people with that model. And I got, I got a number of good accounts from people in that same scenario. Well, that's really cool because most of the time people who experience that don't get a second look, you know, so it's the type of thing where it's in their memory, but they don't get to, and especially up close. And the detail on your model is incredible. Mm. So I can imagine that would be a, quite an experience for those that have seen it from afar. Yeah. The, my best witness, uh, the, the, and this is a guy who doesn't, he's not just seen them. He, he, like, he really knows these animals. The guy's amazing. If he would ever talk about it, we had learned so much just from him. He looked at the model and he said, it's bang on. He said, except for uh, he had a, an up-close encounter with uh, uh, a group of Sasquatch, and there was a female, and he said that she had more of a pointed head and more of a pointed chin. But then he also told me that their, their faces differ as much as people's do, huh. that they're, they are like that, that, that some look, you know, they, they all look different. But like they, they, they're within the parameters of being a Sasquatch. But he said, he said the model was bang on. Uh, and then there's, there's a few things about it, like if you watch the movie, when we set the thing up, you'll notice that the, the nose is quite low on it. I actually had the nose where a human nose sits. And I went, I, something didn't look right, so when I went back and looked at the, uh, the, the Patterson photos again, I realized that the nose sits up very, very close to the eyes. And uh, there's a lot more distance between the, the nose and the mouth than on a human. And, the, and there's a lot less distance between the nose and the eyes, the line across the eyes. And uh, so I watch for that. Whenever I, you know, there, there's a lot of photographs on the net that people, you know, grainy or whatever. Uh, I can usually tell if they're accurate by the nose position because that's, a, that's kind of a different thing. It's a different observation. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like when we find tracks out in the woods. A Sasquatch has an indentation on the outside of the foot where a human track has the indentation on the inside of, of the foot where the arch is. 
but on your Sasquatch track, the foot is flat, and there's a in, slight indentation on the outside of the foot, almost always. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really liked about the movie was when you came out and said, you're like, well, my goal here is for somebody to see, uh, you know, see my model and say, that's it. That's what I saw. Yeah. And I thought that was, yeah. a really, that was a really powerful thing to say because you're trying to put a, um, you know, you're trying to give validation to people who a lot of others will laugh at or will mock. Yeah. And, um, exactly. you know, it, it's even though we think like, well, it's for a competition or it's for arts for art's sake, it can, there's also there's a therapeutic quality to it that I thought was powerful in that aspect. Exactly. Uh, I've had a number, a number of people uh, in, in front of it. And some, I've had people re- react emotionally uh, to it. Um, you know, it, they, they've, I've had a number of people now validate it. Uh, and, and I try to explain to people that this is not an embellishment. It is simply the interpretation of what is in the Patterson footage. Well, you know, speaking of the Patterson footage... Um you guys do show the, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film in the movie. And, Dan, I was wondering, that's not in the public domain or whatever, too. Like, was that half the budget? Or how do you get a copy? Like, how do you get access to that footage? Well, that's debatable. And, and uh, you <laughs> it's know. It's fair use, baby. <laughs> I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into issues of fair use. But, you know, I only used as much as I had to to explain what was going on and, and, Honestly, you know, the, the, the ownership of that copyright has been debated, and, and I'm not sure exactly um, if it's in the public domain or, or if, if the Pattersons actually own the, the copyright. I, I did a lot of research and wasn't able to get anywhere with it, and, and uh, yeah, I don't want to get myself in trouble. Fair but, enough. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's one frame, I, th- I think it's like frame 354 that's actually in the public domain, and that's, that's the, the image that you always see, you know. Right. Um, but the movie has been analyzed to death, you know, so many people have, have, you know, have analyzed, you know, I mean, just, it's crazy the, the amount of attention that movie has gotten, and it's considered among Bigfooters to be, you know, the, the holy grail of Bigfoot evidence. And, you know, there are people that claim that they were the guy in the suit, but there's more than one person that, that has claimed that. And, and nobody has actually ever debunked it, even though a lot of people claim that it's been debunked, but nobody really has been able to do that. Um, but it is a, it's a fascinating thing, and it's certainly a part of pop culture now, you know, and, and it does get used, you know, in, in a lot of different forms. So, um, you know, the only time I show it is when we're actually discussing uh, the validity of it, and and sure. I actually animated a different part, you know, instead of showing it in, in a different section. So I just tried to tried to be careful and make it actual fair use. No, I, I really, I just was interested in that because I was I was always wondering, like, because you always see it in different documentaries, you'll see it online in a million places, and I'm like, what's the intellectual property behind the Patterson film? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a whole other movie, I think. <laughs> right now, another thing you were working on, uh, or another thing that uh, about the film is the the publicity stunt with the Empire State Building, and so I read that the press release from you know the website about that, and and Dan, I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, the fur on the Empire State Building. What was that all about? <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a group of uh, there's a filmmaker. 
I'm going to mess up his name if I say it. It's uh, Louis Desteros or something like that. Anyway, he, he made a movie called Racing Extinction. And he's done a lot of movies. Most recently, he did one called Game Changer that's been real popular. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very accomplished and award-winning you know, documentary filmmaker. And uh, he did a movie called Racing Extinction. And as part of their publicity, they were projecting images of endangered species onto like public landmarks and, and buildings. They did it on the Vatican, and they did it on the Empire State Building. So, you know, it was just kind of a, an April Fool's joke. We said we were trying to cover the Empire State Building and for to raise awareness about Sasquatch and the, uh, you know, diminishing habitat. <laughs> well, okay, so I was just, I was just wondering, because I read the press release, and maybe it, oh, it might have probably said April 1st, 2019, and like a dumbass, I was like, oh, that must oh, be it. Oh, my gosh. Um, you but fell I, for it, Mike. Yeah, because I was looking at it, and I was like, wow, how, do, how did I not hear about this uh, publicity stunt? Because the idea was, and there's a little picture of it, too. We'll link to it in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 290. We'll link to it. But um, it's, you know, it's the Empire State Building with a bunch of fur over it, and then this idea that security guards or whatever had to go clean it up, and it was all made from, like, recycled plastic bottles. To keep with the yeah, environmental theme. <laughs> yes. So so I was hoodwinked on that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Ken, one thing I wanted to ask about, too, uh, when you were in the creation of this, is probably the most famous recreation of Bigfoot, at least the most detailed that I can think of, is Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. Is that, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is that, is, is that special effects creation for the movie? And yeah. um, did you compare and contrast at all or when you were working on it? Were you like, well, this, they've got this part right, they got this part wrong? Or uh, I was just wondering, because I think besides your recreation of uh, the Patterson-Gimlin uh, Bigfoot, that seems to be yep. the most detailed, uh, you know, costume made of the creature. Yes, I agree. Um, now, the, the biggest problem with any kind of a, um, a costume that you, that you get uh, for a Sasquatch that where you're going to put a human into is if you look at all of the skulls of all the other great apes and all of the other hominids, for that matter, from Neanderthal to Homo erectus heidelbergensis or, uh, or any of them, the only one that has a tall forehead is Homo sapien. And the Sasquatch, if you like, is, uh, its forehead goes back from the brow ridge. The head moves backwards. So that if you were to actually take a... a, a an accurate Sasquatch uh, mask and pull it down, your head would stop the, the mask from, from lowering low enough to get your eyes through it. So whenever they use, uh, any, whenever they use anything that they have to put a human uh, head into, the, the, the forehead goes straight up like a human and then up to a point. And uh, a, a real Sasquatch uh, doesn't have that. And this is very apparent in a, another piece of film footage. Uh, if, you, uh, if you go onto YouTube, you can even see it's called the Peguis Road Sasquatch. And what it is is it's uh, a couple of native guys were hunting in the winter, and a, and a huge, like a big Sasquatch, walked across the road. They pulled the camera out, and of course it had gone behind a berm, and they got a, just a small clip of it walking into the trees. But at one point, it looks up, and you can see the brow ridge, and you can see the head go straight back from the brow ridge. And Patty does that, too. So the, the Harry and the Hendersons 
they had to alter the forehead in order to get a human actor's head inside of it. Or, you know, so that that's the first thing that stands out. And I've seen a lot of of uh, what I call fake footage. Uh, as soon as I see that forehead going straight up, I know it's homosexual. Ah, that's something to look out for when we're seeing all those. <laughs> that's an awesome. Like, ones. Well, and also the guy that played Harry and the Henderson, um, Kevin Peter Hall, he also played the Predator mm-hmm. in the, the Predator films, and he was the basketball player that could shrink to a tiny size uh, in the TV show Misfits of Science, <laughs> which we've talked about Misfits of Science on this show at least four or five times so far. Um, because they had a lot of very cool paranormal ideas in that TV show that only lasted for seven episodes. You know, Ken, before you mentioned uh, the whole DNA aspect of Bigfoot, and I, you know, I'm interested in how you ended up getting what you think is a sack of Bigfoot crap. <laughs> like, that, I thought that was awesome. I'm like, what? I'm like, that's the... Um, that was one of the most exciting parts of the movie for me because yeah. you're like you're like laughing, you're holding up this bag, you know, and even, um, you know, even your uh, your your wife mentions it. She's like, look, he's bringing crap home, and I'm like, yes, I'm like, I want to sack <laughs> yeah, well, a bunch of crap in my freezer. Uh, you know, How much money you got? Well, uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know what? <laughs> how much you think? There's a great story behind that. <laughs> We're doing really this podcast, is. and uh, this trapper friend of mine uh, that you know, he was literally to the point he didn't want to go out there anymore. I mean, because he says he was on his trap line for six years, and then suddenly they just decided that to accept him, and they would walk out in front of him, and and it, he said they, and this guy is tough. He's not scared of nothing or nobody. He said, but the things petrify him. But if you if you're following accounts, like all the squatchers know that if you're any anywhere in vicinity of these animals, it's uh, you will experience an unreasonable amount of fear. And I I still think it's electromagnetic energy. And we actually did an experiment uh, with Dan's dog, where I actually called one in in the nighttime, and his dog turned inside out. Well, everybody knows dogs and wolves communicate with electromagnetic energy. They, that's what they do. Uh, so, anyways, this he said that this. Something was robbing his traps, his Martin sets. So he had the beaver cubes with this stuff called Martin magic, which is uh, skunk oil and fish oil mixed with, uh, yeah, mixed together and then put, you know, made rancid and then put on. That's good stuff. <laughs> All right, hold on. We're going to have to, we're gonna have to take a rewind in the, we're gonna have to th- rewind in the lingo here. He's got his bigger beaver cubes with some skunk oil and fish oil. Okay, now we're, remember we're not. We're not hunters. We're talking about we're talking about the west. We're talking about the western end of Alberta, right? So, what's the population of this area? Like, how big are the places we're talking about, and how many humans live there? Uh, well, very well. Almost no humans live there. Uh, there's a there is the odd native encampment out there. There's one that's close by, but this is public land. It's not land that people live on. But but they have it divided up in what they call registered trap lines. Now, some of this area is inaccessible because of river canyons and mountains. Uh, as a matter of fact, this whole area up until the trapper went in there was completely inaccessible, and which is why they've been in there. Uh, you know, they have this, this habit of getting as far away from people as they can. Uh, so, you know, so when he ran a, a string of martin traps through there, he figured, wow, this has never been trapped here, so, you know, he'll get a good quote of, of martin of pine martens, which is a fur-bearing animal that they make sable coats out of. 
And so are these traps like leg traps or are they cages oh, no. or like what kind of traps? They're, they're, they're actually called a conibear trap. They're, uh, they've outlawed a lot of the leg traps. These are a, a, a trap that's like a square and it, it, it uh, basically is designed to, to kill the animal uh, instantly. And uh, so what, uh, what he, you put them in a box and you put the bait in the back and then the marten climbs up the tree and then you catch it and you find the marten hanging from the trap. It's, uh, you know, dispatched humanely. And then you reset the trap, rebate it, and then keep going. But he found all his traps hanging out of these boxes. They were still set. And the bait was gone. And each one had three rocks sitting on top of the box. <laughs> and he couldn't, figure out, he couldn't figure out who was jacking with them. And uh, so, anyways, to make a long story short, he found this bed under a tree, which, which squatchers will know is, is called a nest. And uh, he said it was like his 10-foot round nest, and it looked like whatever was in there had been living in there for, you know, weeks or even months. Because he said there was, and this was in the winter, so everything was frozen. So there, there was, he said, piles of, of uh, feces all the way around this thing. And, uh, you know, he drew us a map. He said he wouldn't take us. He drew us a map, told us which set it was at. We went in there. We got out the snow shovels, and we dug this nest up. And there was... I mean, a lot of uh, this scat. And it looks like human scat or bear scat, but there's just more of it in a pile. Like, it's a lot. It's like a triple flusher. And so... <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a treasure map, but the, the treasure was yeah, scat. Yeah, we, right. yeah, that's right. We, I think I still have the map, you know. But uh, we, we filled up uh, five bags uh, with gloves on. Oh we actually gosh. filmed the whole thing. We filmed the whole procedure. And... Uh, and then, of course, I gave it to, I, I do work for people in the government, so I know them personally. So I, you know, I, I convinced the guy to test it, because that's how they were counting grizzly bears, was through uh, extracting DNA from scat. So I knew that they had the, the preparation and they had the experience to do this. And uh, I didn't know you filmed that, Ken. You should have given me that footage. Where is that? It's, uh, you know what? <laughs> I, I found the little, uh, the little cassette. It's sitting on the shelf with all the DVDs right now. Ooh! How'd I miss that? How'd I miss that one? Well, that's I, I a special feature. I didn't. It was. I had put it aside to keep it safe, and then I forgot about it when you collected all the other ones. So, so I, they tested it, and you know they were not going to tell me the results. But of course, I knew somebody personally who was very high up, and he said that it was inconclusive. And I, I thought that meant they didn't find DNA. And he said, no, we don't know what it is. It doesn't match anything in GenBank. And so he told me, he said, this is kind of the result you wanted. That's awesome. And, and, but you know what I don't get? You know what makes me mad is every time these guys get out in public, they're like, we had people bring us uh, hair samples purported to be Sasquatch, and we proved they were buffalo, or we proved they were horse, or we proved they were human. But nobody wants to talk about my sample. Hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, I... I, I don't look at, no, no, at what's there. I also look at what's not there. Right. And I kind of, I kind of got the gist after all of this that I wished I hadn't taken the samples to them, because I think they know what they are. Oh man. <laughs> you know, and and the thing is, in the movie, you'll talk about a couple of different things. First of all, um, you you know you you link it to uh, Gigantopithecus. Well, we talk about we touch on that subject. Yes. You know, I mean, as far as like. The link as far as when you talk about hominids that could be as big as what people talk as a Sasquatch is. Yes. Um, and so that, that's a good, uh, I was like, oh, 
I like it when it brings b- things back into the realm of the solid cryptozoology of Gigantopithecus. And th- that's like the Lauren Coleman model yeah. versus like the Nick Redfern Bigfoot from another dimension model. And so I kind of wanted to ask real quick, from the people you've talked mm-hmm. to, do they think of Bigfoot, because you talk about the fear, yeah. you know, the, the fear people see and the, and the high strangeness that happens yeah. often around Bigfoot yeah. sightings. Um, with a lot of the people, what the people that have talked to you, do you feel the stories have a supernatural element or an undiscovered crypto element? I, I think that they definitely have the, um, I, I, there is, the, I mean, there's merit to it because I've experienced it myself. But everything has, uh, one way or another, everything has an explanation. Uh, whether the explanation is, is within our comprehension is, you know, and like I've heard a lot of people say that they believe that the, the, the fear is induced by infrasound. And I've said, okay, well, let's step back for a minute and, and you ask yourself, which animals actually use, you know, infrasound? Um, infrasound is more of something that, that works underwater, you know, uh, and all animals, to some extent, use electromagnetic energy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I hunt with uh, a suit called a HEX suit. Now, it's H-E-C-S, Human Energy Concealment System. And what this, this uh, hunting clothes has is, with carbon filaments, an actual Faraday cage. And I could tell you stories of animals walking right up to me in the wild that don't know what I am. Even my dog doesn't know me. When I walk out the door, the dog barks at me. Uh, Because all all of a sudden, I have eliminated my electromagnetic signature. And they've they've tested these suits. You can go onto their website, uh, the HECS website, and they will show you people walk up to a wild turkey. And uh, literally almost close enough to grab. I mean, I've walked up to a lot of wild turkey in my... Oh, you mean the animal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, well, but you see, uh, so uh, now, now, and the the conversation that I like to have and and the analogy I like to use is this. When you talk about uh, rudimentary uh, vocalization in in mammals, you have your dogs. You know, your dog growls. It, uh, it, It howls. It barks. It yips. It whines. You know, and these are all communication signals that we understand quite well. But when you talk about the human brain and what it can do with sound, all of a sudden we can describe events that happened a billion years ago. We can uh, uh, sing an opera. We can uh, talk about math equations to the point where people can actually see what we're talking about. So we have developed, we have gone so far and developed this uh, sound into something so complicated that almost every other animal in the animal kingdom has no no comprehension of what we can do with sound. Now step back and and and, and ask yourself: What if there was an animal that uh, could do this with the basic uh, electromagnetic energy? What if there's some an animal that could um, could manipulate it into such a way that they could broadcast it, they could uh, interpret it, and it's not so far fetched when you think that an eel about a foot long can create enough electricity to kill a, a horse and its rider uh, if, if it steps on it, you know, an electric eel. And, uh, and, and also, I've talked with a lot of people who've actually seen the red eye shine on Sasquatches uh, without, the, without the, um, the presence of any other light that could refract. 
And, and uh, I've, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of witnesses about that. Sometimes you'll see their eyes almost like come on like two lights. Well, is that like is that like the monkeys? I mean, there's certain animals like lemurs and stuff like that. Maybe lemurs, but I'm thinking about certain primates that have that kind of reflective thing in their yeah. eyes that uh, I can't think about. We learned about it in primate psychology a thousand years ago. But um, that, you know, when you, seen under certain light, they seem to, the eyes seem to glow. Yeah, well, that's right, because, uh, because of the... Um Oh, I don't know what they, I forget what they call it. It's inside the eye. Actually, I use... Yeah, I forgot the name, too. But, um, <laughs> but you guys know what I'm yeah, talking about, though. But it has a refractive yeah, quality. A lot of animals have it. But when, when, you have, uh, when you have something that, like, especially with a primate eye, like even people, when, the, when, when a person's eye refracts, it refracts red because of the blood. It, it, it kind of obscures things. But if, if the animal could actually... Could actually uh, produce light through some sort of electromagnetic energy or biological energy, it would automatically be red because of the blood that's flowing through. So it makes sense in a way. It's a theory. It's only a theory. But I've talked to enough people about it to say that there is something about the red uh, eyeshine of a Sasquatch maybe being produced and not actually refracted light. Mm. And it it would lean towards the electromagnetic theory. Um, you know, I, I, the first time I ever got zapped, as they say, it when I was out looking for Sasquatch, it was a horrifying experience. I have never gone back out without a, um, a hex suit on with the Faraday cage. I don't ever want to go through that again. And I've just, you know, using it as a, um, uh, you know, using it as, a, as a, theoretically, it's, it, it'll stop that or, or it'll inhibit it from happening. But when, when Dan and I were sitting there, we talked about this theory in the middle of the night in the, in the time when the trapper told me the Sasquatches gather in that area. So I gave a couple of really quick calls. And I told Dan, I said, uh, your dog, I said, you know, the dog didn't even lift his head when I called. And uh, I said, you know, does your dog ever lose control and go crazy and get really scared? And he said no. And I said, well we can establish right now that I have no magical, mystical powers over your dog. Well, it was a, within 10 minutes, that dog was fixed on that ridge down, down wind, and, and it was scared, like really scared. And uh, so the thing came in, downwind, went up onto that ridge, and as soon as that electromagnetic energy hit us, like probably scanning us, the dog sensed it right away, and, and the, whatever it was left immediately, and then the dog calmed down. But that really happened, and I got the witness on the phone with me. It'll tell you that happened. <laughs> no, Betty's laying there. She's not on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but but so, I've, so that was my testing of the theory, and I think there's, I think there's something to it. You know, so a lot of what people think is, is paranormal. And we had a, I, I was guiding some hunters once, and we had uh, an episode where a guy went outside the tent, and he screamed, and he passed out. And, he, and he, when he, we woke him up, we, we drug him back in the tent. He had no memory, and I'm pretty sure there was a Sasquatch outside the tent. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, the guy had no memory. He went straight to sleep right afterwards. And uh, then I was talking to uh, another fellow. You guys might have heard of him. He's a friend of mine, Adrian Erickson. And he talked to a guy who said that he had a Sasquatch standing in front of him, and he says they appeared to appear and disappear, almost like they were going in and out of portals. But he said that he, was, he got really disorientated and confused, and he said what was happening was that snippets of his memory were being erased. 
is how he described it to Adrian. Adrian, and when he took told me that, I thought, bingo, that has something to do with the, the people talking about the Sasquatches appearing and disappearing into the portals. If they have this ability to do this through electromagnetic energy, it's like I said, it's a theory. But I only listen to the stories and and accounts that people tell me, and I try to draw theories and conclusions from that. You know, you can't embellish. Things. Well, Ken, what you're saying right there, like the portals thing. First of all, I love the, I love the electromagnetic theory. I love that you're pushing out trying different things, wearing the hex suit, all that kind of yep. stuff. Um, like that kind of research and that kind of just try, like it's fun, it's interesting, yep. and it's, it's pushing things forward. And I think that's important. Um, you talk about the tree structures in the movie, yep. and you talk about like when you see a bunch of trees put together, I mean, all like Blair Witch style or whatever, but they're put together like almost like a like a pyramid or, you know, when you're putting together, you're putting a bunch of, uh, like you would make a tent from, uh, you know, a makeshift tent or yep. something. And there are some Native American legends in Wisconsin of if you see trees that bend all the way over and touch the ground, that those are the portals that the Sasquatch comes in and out of. Okay. And I just thought that was interesting. You were talking about the tree structures, and I had just heard this particular thing from a, a Native guy that was saying like, oh, yeah, well, I believe in them, but I, don't, I, I believe they're a lot more than just, uh, you know just apes undiscovered or whatever he was like i believe that they're beings that you know come in and out or they're you know there's beings from a different dimension or whatever and he talks about the legends of his people or whatever that the the trees bend over and touch the ground that's the portals they come in and out of and so when you're saying that um that adrian was telling you about that and that, that they seem to disappear and reappear yep. and then you talk about the tree structures that all kind of linked together for me in uh something that i thought was a couple of uh, interesting connections well, when you have people try to explain something away uh there's two trains of thought there's like you know and there's there's still the two major trains of thought even to this day you have your science-based um train of thought and you have your religious train of thought Okay. Now, um, with the scientific train of thought, you have to try to apply existing theories, and you have to try to reason through it in such a way that, you know, that 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 you can come back and and come up with an equation eventually. But with the religious train of thought, uh, the sky's the limit, you know. And and the with the Native Americans, God bless them, they the the nature is 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 a religion to them, so they're going to. They're going to try to uh, explain things in a way that makes, you know, that makes sense from what their forefathers told them. You know, so that that's one of the things that uh, that. And so what I try to do is, uh, and and believe it or not, I'm a person of faith, uh, and that comes from a near-death experience. But uh, but if but really, when it comes to this subject, I try very very hard uh, to to differentiate the people who are talking to me between. Faith and belief, they're two different things, you know. Um, and, and so I, I just, just because, because I'm, I'm looking for proof, uh, I have to be very, very careful with my theories. They have to be plausible. Because one day I might walk in with proof and nobody believes it's actually in my hands. I'm a nutcase, you know. So I try to keep some semblance of credibility to the people who are even never going to believe me. Well, that, that seems right. Um, and that's the, the thing is, the one thing we have, I was actually talking about uh, this to someone the other day, is, well, you know, when you're talking about the New York Times, or you're talking about newspapers or something like that, they've been around for 100 years, they've earned credibility. 
through you know through daily daily papers or whatever for decades and centuries now in some of these cases of newspapers and uh but when you're talking about people who are doing their best to convince you of something um extraordinary then your cred- like if if you can't be credible on little things how can people trust you on the big things and and, and that's and i i think that's where it's really important what you're saying is that you got to maintain that believability as much right. as possible and understand that, you know, these are theories or things we believe from, you know, uh, empirical evidence and things we've experienced. And that's the best explanation we can give to you at the time, but of a re- very real experience that that's happened. Right. And saying that, you can't just throw out near-death experience without giving us a little bit of follow-up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories that I tell people. Um, you know, and I just wanted to on the other subject really quickly. I just wanted to say that when it comes to to what you're trying to uh, when you're trying to convince people of something or trying to to get your point across, you have to try very very hard not to come across as agenda driven. It's it, that's extremely important because the minute somebody senses an agenda, they will shut you down. And uh, so you basically what you have to do is you have to leave the whole thing open as to, you know, okay, this is what I know, what do, what's your interpretation, you know, like it doesn't have to fit my, uh, my beliefs and because I don't want to stand here and say, you know, this is true and this is everything else and now we're going to stop all logging or drilling, you know, you have to be very careful about what your agenda is when it comes to things like that. But it's, uh, and back to the near-death experience, uh, when I was 27 years old, I broke my arm, uh, and of course, I was wrestling with a big Down syndrome guy, and he broke my arm. And it can't be a normal story, right? But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got the visual now. Well, yeah, yeah. Like uh, so. Anyway, they sat me up in the chair, and I had a compound fracture in my left arm. And they shouldn't have sat me up because I went into cyanotic shock, and all oh, the blood no. drained out. Of, all the blood drained out of my head, and uh, and all of a sudden. Uh, like everybody there basically said they watched me die. Uh, I, I, they said I wasn't breathing, I had no pulse, there was a nurse there. But none of those guys tried to revive me. I still question that one. But uh, I was, well, I was... <laughs> Thanks, guys. So they were all looking at me. I, I turned I turned white, my mouth turned black. And uh, But meanwhile, what happened with me was all of a sudden, everything just became made out of light. And uh, all of a sudden, it was just light. It was... Uh, pure light. Everything was light. And then I looked at myself and I realized I was made of light. And then I started to fly. And I got, I was up and I was, I was, it was the most amazing thing. I can't even give you words to describe this experience. It, it euphoria is a muddy, dirty word. It that doesn't even, doesn't even come close to describing how unbelievably pleasant that, that experience was. And I got to what, uh, uh, I guess the best way for me to describe it is around light. Uh, but the thing is, I'm talking about light inside of light without polluting the other light sources. If, and it doesn't make sense when you talk about it, but when I remember it, it makes perfect sense. I even remember the, the feeling of knowing everything. And uh, when I got up there, um, there, was a, there was somebody, I was talking to somebody, and I told them to let me through, and they wouldn't let me through. They told me I wasn't supposed to go through. So I got an argument because I did not want to leave. And I wanted to stay there. And I remember the phrase, it's my choice and you know it. And I said this. Uh, and then what happened after that is a big 
blank. Uh, it's not in my memory anymore, but uh, I opened my eyes sitting in the chair. People were crying. Uh, the ambulance was just pulling up. <laughs> and I started laughing at everybody. And they turned around and looked at me like I just crawled out from under a tombstone. And I said, get a camera. We've got to get pictures of this. Somebody grabbed a camera. And they have pictures of loading me with a, with a great big crap-eating grin on my face being loaded into the ambulance. I was... My my arm never hurt again from the time I woke up, from the worst pain I ever felt to no pain. Uh, I think I negotiated that. Wow. <laughs> but the thing is, when I came, I realized afterwards that I came out of that experience with no fear. I did, nothing scares me anymore, nothing. Uh, ridicule, people could want to make fun of me over this. I can make fun of me better than anybody. So uh, there's a <laughs> lot of amazing. I, you know, for a paranormal experience, but I have since uh, met a lot of other people who have had exactly the same experience. And the very interesting thing about it is when I meet somebody who has that experience, it's almost like I know them. Hmm. You know, I, those people I, I really hit it off with. You know, it's almost like I know them. It's really strange. It's bizarre. And, uh, you know, and it, it kind of it, it became something that in a subtle way over the years I realized has defined me. So oh. There's that, you know, experience I had. That's amazing. We talked, we've talked with a lot of people who've had near-death experiences and described very similar uh, to what you just said. So that's that's fascinating and how it impacted you. Yeah, well, uh, um, and I've watched a lot of videos on it. And, 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 and as soon as people, you know, were saying that, I, you know, we live our lives in fear, we're worried about everything. We're afraid of everything. From the time we get up to the time we go to bed. And when all of that is gone, it's almost like uh, things just become very clear. You know, it does, it's, it's an inhibitor that is gone away. And, but, and you're not afraid of death, which I used to be terrified of death, and I'm just, I mean, I'm not afraid of death. Uh, to the point where I need to, you know, go to the doctor and get my blood work done every year, and I don't. I just, why? I don't know. You know? Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's mm. kind of, you know, and, and it's always in the back of my mind. But mm. I, I, I view death completely different than a lot of people around me. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's so... And I'm I'm quite confident in what I experienced. Well, I'm completely confident in it, whether people believe me or not. And I like to tell people, you know, and I've actually comforted a lot of people who were A, terminal, or had family members that were terminal just by telling them what I experienced. That's a wonderful gift. Well, I guess, I guess, you know. And um, thanks for sharing that experience with us. Yeah, I it does, had you know. no idea that was going to be part of our conversation, but it's <laughs> yes, fascinating. So. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. back to Sasquatch. <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're getting short on time here. But getting back to the the nuts and bolts of your amazing model that you made of the Sasquatch, I just had a question that I was curious about the model itself. Uh, I was wondering, number one, d- does it have a name? <laughs> <laughs> its name is Patty. Okay. So, you know, we've, we've referenced we've referenced Patty throughout this this conversation and. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, Roger Patterson was the guy that filmed that famous movie in 1967. Okay. And apparently they, they referred to the figure as Patty. Um, oh, that's cute. And I have heard, I've heard that it's because... And it was wife, a female because she's got boobs. Right, right. And, and his wife's name was Patricia, and I think that's why, but I, I don't really know. But, okay, but everybody right. in, the, you know, in the Bigfoot community refers to that figure as Patty, and and, and this one was modeled after her. So I think, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't me that first started calling her Patty. Yeah. I think it was Ken, but, 
But yeah, and then, she's always been known as Patty. But this was the first time I thought of the actual figure from, from the Bigfoot from that movie as a woman. Like, I've always oh thought gosh. of it as a dude. So he kept on calling it Patty. I'm like, Patty, why? And then I'm like, wait, Bigfoot's got snoobs. Oh like, it totally God. blew me away. I yeah. was like, no, I'm sorry. I was just like, I never thought of a Bigfoot. I never even thought of, a, like, female, male Bigfoot. Right. I never even thought of, like, that she might have to wear a big bra. But does Patty, so I know you guys bring Patty, you brought her to the film festival and everything. Does Patty have a home now, or is she slated to go somewhere? Because... We've been to about uh, several paranormal museums that I bet would just be clamoring to have this amazing model. Right, fighting for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ken, Ken gave her to me recently, and and I've been traveling with her to promote the movie, <laughs> and I had you know extensive plans to to go to more festivals and screenings. And, sure. And I mean, actually, it was supposed to screen tonight, you know, in in the uh, Boston area. So. You know, all those things have been canceled mm. because of the, Aww. you know, coronavirus, uh, you know, concerns. So, and so, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. There's still a chance if things kind of return back to normal, I'll do some more touring with her. But but she's safely sheltered in place with you? Yeah, she's sheltering here. She's got an extra large mask for when we go out <laughs> in the public. And, and uh, I think she's probably immune, though. I think she has natural immunity to it. Because, you know, a lot of them live in caves and they eat. Yeah, you know, they snack on guano regularly. That's, yeah, so. that's a fair point. Yeah, if you can handle that, you can handle. Well, they got big lungs too, so a respiratory thing. Yeah, they can just they just cough it well, right I don't out. Know if, if, they if, actually if, have if three lungs. If anybody else has got the ten thousand memes on their Facebook feed about the Sasquatch is the social distancing champion. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so her home is with you, Dan. You know, she's what? she's uh she's just. You got an extra roommate for a while. Resting up and waiting to go on tour again. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get her out there. And if she may end up at some point in a museum, I think that might be a good, a good home for her to, you know, absolutely in her old age. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I should probably mention too, I kept casts of, of, uh, of the mannequin and everything after I made it so I can make another one anytime I want. And, And, Dan invested a lot of his life and a lot of his money into this project, and she's the iconic original that was made in the uh, in the movie. So I think he deserves to have her, uh, uh-huh. and I because I can always make another one. And I really, I really want to make a better one, to be honest. I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think I can make a lot better one. You know, but uh, but now, just recently, I should tell you guys, there was uh, some vid- some uh, stills came from a uh, a piece of. Uh, or a video of a Sasquatch in Colorado looking through somebody's window. Hey, did you guys see those? I don't think I've seen that yet. You know, actually, I thought that was on Adrian Eric and Erickson's like Twitter or his Facebook or something like that. I think he shared yeah, well, it. Yeah, huh? that, that thing's real, um, and it's a male. And the, the thing that really killed me about it was I took one. You can see its eyes. You can see its nose. And the nose is in the right position, first of all. Like, you know, people don't know that. But the thing that really got me was the morphological differences between uh, the head on the one in that picture, which has to be a male because the, the, the windowsill is eight feet up, and a female wouldn't be able to see that high, and this thing's about nine feet tall. So, uh, but the morphological differences in the head are actually the sa- in the same parameters as they are from a gorilla, from a female gorilla, Patty, to a male gorilla, this, this thing looking through the window with the, the, the type of forehead and head it ha- and crown it has. Um, so I basically now have what I believe is enough reference to make a, a male model now. 
just from those pictures. Oh, so Patty cool. gets a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the movie is really fun, and um, you know we all had a great time watching it, and you guys obviously had a great time yep. making it. Um, we didn't even we didn't even talk about the whole. Uh, Roy Orbison impersonator thing, but uh, that's a treat for you guys when you watch that's, Big Fur. All the royalty money went. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the one thing is, so uh, Cam, when you're in the studio and you're singing, you're dressed up like you're going to the office. What was the ins- my last question is what was the inspiration behind the suit? That was Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan that was me. Down there, he says, you know, we're we're renting a suit for you, and I'm like, really? I said, okay, okay, dude. Cool. And uh, and the actual glasses that I wore in that one scene there were actual Roy Orbison issue glasses, and and uh, so you know we, we we thought we would do a tongue in cheek sort of thing. You know, I of course I did the uh, the the song in dreams, which is my one of my favorite, if not my favorite piece of the movie, and uh, that came out really really nice. You know, of course I had the glasses and the suit on, and it was kind of a heartfelt moment, so I liked it. Um, but uh, but yeah, like you know, I think that. Dan, Dan had a vision, and I, I guess he figured that, you know, rather than me in one of my plaid work shirts or something like that. that or like a Canadian tuxedo of yeah, all denim. <laughs> oh, there was there was a guy in the film wearing one of those. Yeah. I love it. No, it's great. Well, you know, I think Big Fur's got a powerful message, uh, whether, you know, um, however you feel about taxidermy and stuff. Like the thing is that the, the combining of... Uh, the conservationists from hunters and taxidermists and things to the conservation of people that believe in the environment and, and care about that. There's a, there's a place to connect both yeah. of them. And um, I think that the film really delivers that message powerfully. And uh, so at, even though like the attraction for like me and Wendy and stuff, it's like, we see like, Oh, Bigfoot, we got to go check it out. Um, there's also, uh, I think a moral in there for everybody about the importance about saving these wild places, uh, like in Alberta and stuff and in places untouched by humans, because there's a lot of cool things there. out there left to yeah, discover. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> yeah. It's an entertaining movie. And, and, and you know, the, the movie very early on, as Dan puts it, you know, uh, it's okay to laugh. You know, there's there's some kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff with, with, you know, animation and, and you know, funny moments in it. And, and it, the movie lets you know right from the beginning that, you know, it, it, it takes itself seriously but not too seriously. So it's, it's, it's good entertainment. It doesn't, it's not, you know, not so offensive. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not necessarily agenda-driven, but the messages are in there. Absolutely. Now, uh, Dan, if people want to see Big Fur, where's the best opportunity that they can go check out the film or, um, you know, a website or purchase it or see it in an upcoming, uh, where can they find upcoming showings? Sure. Um, well, there were, you know, we have plans for festivals for the next six months and those are probably either all postponed or, or yeah. canceled. So uh-huh. it's probably your next, your next chance is probably going to be uh, streaming in some way, it'll probably go to something like iTunes first. But but if you want to follow along, you can go to the website and sign up for updates. Uh, that's bigfurmovie.com. And we won't send you a whole ton of emails. In fact, you'll be lucky if you ever get any. <laughs> but you can check on there. And, and as soon as it's actually available online, there's a process that, that we'll go through over the next few months. Uh, but by the end of the summer, it should be uh, available if you look for it. And then we have a Facebook page and an Instagram and 
And so, you know, you, all, you can link through all those things from the uh, website. Sounds good. And Ken, if people want to uh, know more about your creations or find you online in a place where they can see uh, some more of the uh, amazing things that you have built, uh, where can they find uh, that? Basically, I just have a, a Facebook page, and I just it's, it, almost anybody can look at it. I don't have any privacy parameters on it so much, you know. Um, I Right now, I'm... I'm I'm in the midst of, of uh, transitioning my business. I've more or less retired now. I'm going into uh, a designing product for other taxidermists and, and just going into other endeavors. So I'm kind of at a weird place. I'm between careers, you could say, almost uh, in some ways. So, you know, I mean, you, but if you, if you Google me or you go online, you can, you can find what I'm doing. Sounds good. Well, I'm sure with a talent like yours, uh, it'll find a home. And Dan, you as well, a filmmaker with a wonderful film. And we want to uh, just thank you both for joining us today on See You on the Other Side. And wherever you guys are going next, um, I hope it's an awesome place. Oh, thanks. It was, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a great journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, guys. It was fun. Thank you. And special thanks to Scott Marcus of whatsyourghoststory.com for introducing us to Ken and Dan. He thought we might be interested in their story after he interviewed them during the Slamdance Film Festival that happens during Sundance Film Festival. And if you want to see his interview, you can find a link to it at othersidepodcast.com slash 290. For the song this week, there were a couple of things that we just couldn't resist. Number one, Ken isn't just a world-class taxidermist. He's also a Roy Orbison impersonator. He sings a bunch in the film, and it's great. Number two, the fact that they call the Sasquatch in the Patterson-Gimlin film Patty for short, and I didn't even know it was a female until now, well, that kind of blew my mind. So we couldn't resist making a rockabilly song about our favorite new girl, and that's Patty. Seven foot tall, she the biggest girl around, but when she's feeling shy, she's now
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OtherSidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. So we know we have some of our Patreons that are Squatchers. And guys, this episode is dedicated to you. But that doesn't mean we don't love each and every one of our Patreons in their own special way. Oh, yes, indeed. And our community is growing. In fact, we have a brand new Patreon member that we'd like to welcome. Eric. That's right. Eric, welcome to the See You on the Other Side and Sunspot Patreon community. We look forward to sharing jokes and fun and hangouts and all that kind of stuff a lot more in the upcoming months with you. Now, everybody out there, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon of Sunspot, getting music, paranormal content, and a lot of cool stuff in your inbox every week that nobody else is getting, we want you to check out othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we want to give an extra huge see you on the other side. Thank you to Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned! Ned is awesome. He's a huge supporter and he is donating at the Patreon level where he gets his own little special shout out, which is from the heart. That's right. Every single week, Dr. Ned Executive produces the See You on the Other Side podcast. If you're interested in becoming a producer of Wisconsin's number one paranormal podcast and also Wisconsin's sexiest rock and roll band, you can do that at OtherSidePodcast.com slash donate. Have a great, safe, and healthy week. I want to sack a Bigfoot crap in my freezer.